Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Some 2.7 million American children have at least one parent in prison. The number swells to 10 million who have had a parent incarcerated at one time or another. Not surprisingly, the children of parents who are in prison often perform poorly in school, have more physical and mental health problems, often don't have a stable place to live and live in poverty. Some have suggested that the children themselves are being punished for the crime their mother or father was convicted of. So what can be done about it? An organization called Ambassadors for Hope is working with inmates at the Lancaster County Prison and their children in a variety of ways. Joining us on today's program is Rob. Robert R. Cooper, founder and coordinator of Ambassadors for Hope, serving children with a parent in prison. Jennifer Strassenberg, she's a family advocate, and we'll talk about her role. Dr. Mary Glazier is chair, professor, and director of the Center for Public Scholarship and Social Change at Millersville University. And David Bender is the chief strategic officer with Compass Mark, and we'll talk about uh, what uh, Compass Mark does in hosting the family advocate program. We have a full house today. I want to thank all four of you for being with us pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. If you have a question or comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532, or you can send an email to uh, smarttalk at witf.org. Bob Cooper, you uh, were the founder uh, and uh, you're the co-coordinator of Ambassadors for Hope. Let's start there. How did the idea come about? It was really an offhand comment by a friend of mine who's a social worker. And she indicated that uh, she and a number of other social workers were talking about the number of children who have parents in prison. And she said there was an increase in that number, and uh, they were quite concerned about that. So we called a meeting of a group of social workers and simply asked them, is this an issue for you? And they said, yes, it was. And we said, uh, would you be interested in meeting again to talk about the situation? And that's really how we got started, is back in uh, April of 2011. And when you say that the, the, the discussion was centered around, is this an issue, why is there a need? Why is there a need? Well, because nobody knew who these children were. That's the first thing that struck us. As an organization, we said, okay, let's, let's get a list of these children and find out what we can do for them. We found out that nobody had a list that the prison wasn't taking that information when they had an intake. Uh, so nobody really knew where these children were or who they were. And this isn't only in Lancaster. This is nationwide. The children were simply forgotten in this whole process. Mm-hmm. So why is it important then to make sure that these children, that I don't want to say their needs are being met, that but you, you talk to them and eventually we'll talk about uh, uh, maintaining relationships with their parents, but uh, why is it important? Well, we've, we felt that early intervention was essential. We knew what happened to these children when they got into school the older children, when they were in the community, there was a tendency to join the gangs and get with other kids. So our decision early on was that there had to be some kind of early intervention model that we could get to these children as soon as mom and dad went to prison. And that's what we've set up. Our program is designed to get these children right away rather than wait six months and get a referral from the school that the child's in trouble or the police picked up somebody. We hope to be able to avoid that kind of behavior by getting involved at the very beginning. 
Yeah, the early intervention uh, seems to be, from what I've uh, what I've read, early intervention seems to be one of the keys. Yes, it is. Um, if I could just jump in and sure, just say this that Dr. Glazier. part of the uh, concern too is that the caregiver for this child, who is maybe a grandparent or um, a neighbor or friend, um, needs some help just in dealing with the basic. Um, routine things of caring for a child in terms of being able to make medical decisions, um, uh, address the child's fundamental needs. And that was something that we, we were aware wasn't happening. There were a lot of people who were assuming the responsibility for caring for a child whose parent had gone to prison. And they didn't, they didn't know where to begin. They didn't know how to get the help that they needed. So that's a, an important complement to the focus on the child. And we did hear horror stories of children who lived alone without a caregiver after a parent was arrested. Sometimes older children would conceal this fact from their neighbors or their teachers uh, until somebody realized that something was very wrong. I'm not saying that's the usual case, but those uh, extreme cases also suggested that this was an, an important problem that couldn't be ignored anymore. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about all those things, but before we do, uh, Bob, one more question for you during this portion of the program is, uh, you know, how does the program itself work? What are you trying to do? The program is based on the early intervention model, and uh, Jen is our family advocate who works in the prison, meets the people as they are coming into the prison, talks to them, and eventually we hope to get involved with the child and with the caregiver. And we do not duplicate services of other agencies or any other group, but it's our position to get in there and, and facilitate, as uh, Dr. Glazer said, support for the family as well as the child. But what kind of support? I mean, what kind of services specifically? Hi, I can jump in there. <laughs> and, and by the way, I'm identifying I'm identifying voices for you. This is Jennifer uh, Strassenberg. She's the family advocate. Go ahead. Um, as Bob was saying, this this group of children is particularly vulnerable because they don't necessarily fit automatically into um, another um, agency's role, like um, like. A lot of people think that, that they would automatically be uh, referred to children and youth, and that's not the case because they're not necessarily in um, physical danger or um, being abused or neglected, but yet they have a tremendous amount of need. Um, when a parent goes into prison, uh, a child's life is turned upside down. Sometimes they're in a brand new um, home uh, with a, a friend or a relative, and they could have had to change schools. Everything, they may have to be looking for a new doctor. Everything changes for the, for the child at that point. And um, as Bob was saying, early intervention um, is important. And, and that's that's looking, at, to be really specific, that's looking at um, meeting with uh, the parents as they come into prison um, and identifying them as parents. And that, that that's a brand new thing for us. Um, you know, my role as a family services advocate is to help identify them right away and um, get their permission to contact their families and offer for help in getting them connected with resources. Um, and when, I, when I'm saying resources, 
Um, they need to change their state benefits over um, to this new household. Make sure that that um, they're getting connected with counseling and um, just basically whatever their their um, needs are at that time. Trying to help stabilize them in that in that um, initial placement, wherever that is that they landed when uh, their parent went into prison. But one of the key aspects of uh, the Ambassadors for Hope program seems to be maintaining a relationship between the parent who is incarcerated and the children, correct? Absolutely. Why is that important? That connection is essential to um, the child's um, emotional well-being um, and, and sometimes um, their physical well-being. Uh, if, they, if they don't have that connection um, with their parent and, and continue that connection with their parent, they tend to uh, imagine something so much worse than than what the case is. The children worry a lot about their parents when when they go into to prison. Um, they they their impression of what prison is they get from television, and um, you know the children the children ask me specific things like, um, well, can I can I visit my um, my mom or dad's room uh, bedroom? And I'm like, well, you know, and so they they have a conversation about what exactly their their uh, sleeping quarters look like. And and the child is okay with that. They just like to know those kind of specifics. They want to know exactly what they ate. And that's that's one of our um, icebreakers that I use is, is um, to ask their, their parents about um, what they eat. And then that starts a lot of like very good connecting conversations. Now, there's visitation now. And there always has been visitation, family visitation. What's different about this? This, this is very different because the, um, the regular visitation that is offered in prisons is usually in a large room with lots of other people um, and uh, it, it looks like uh, chairs lined up in a row and you sit across from your loved one and it's it's um, you know, there can be 15, 20, 25 people in this room. So it's very loud. Um, you're you're um, not a good place for children <laughs> uh, because they, they want to get down. They want to run around and you have to sit in a chair across from, from your parent. Um, you can sit on the parent's lap, but it, that's not usually where a two-year-old wants to sit. They want to get up and run around. Um, so it's very hard to um, have any sort of quality time, especially for, for children um, with their parent in that style. And um, I've been able to start uh, facilitating one-on-one visits. Um, Lancaster County Prison has been really helpful in um, allowing me to um, set up a, a one-hour, uh, once-a-month visit with their parent where it's just the, the um, child or two children at a time and their parent and me in a in a room and they sit on the floor and play Candyland or um, play with cars and um, just really enjoy some time together without the distractions. Secretary of Corrections here in Pennsylvania, John Wetzel, has appeared on our program several times. And Pennsylvania actually is one of the nation's leaders as far as state prisons go in making some changes, basing it on science. And one of the things that Secretary Wetzel has said that they've tried to do here in Pennsylvania is move inmates to facilities that are closer to their homes because they feel it makes much more sense that there's a better chance, or I should say less of a chance for recidivism uh, if the inmate is uh, seeing his family on a regular basis, getting to talk to them and all that. So there has been a change in thinking over the past 30 years or so. 
30 years ago in the 80s, uh, there was a, a crime wave across this country, across the state. Uh, there was a lot of, there was an attitude of, okay, we just got to lock up, lock these people up, throw away the key. That has changed. Dr. Glazier, how has it changed in the last 30 years? Well, I think we've been, um, we've seen changes in people's attitudes about mass incarceration because we recognize that it's extremely expensive. Um, more prison does not necessarily correlate with better outcomes, uh, that there are other ways of dealing with people that are far more constructive, that a large percentage of the people we've imprisoned have drug and alcohol or mental health problems. Those have to be addressed. And prison is not necessarily the best place to address them, although sometimes you need prison in order to get people's attention. Nobody's denying that that there is some role for incarceration. Um, but I think we've just, we've, we've seen um, that it's it's imposed a burden on the community that we really can't afford. And there have been um, gains made and progress made in reducing the crime rate. So I think that people are perhaps a little bit less um, afraid of runaway crime than they were, say, 25 or 30 years ago, and more receptive to looking at um, evidence-based measures for um, enhancing recidivism, bringing people back to the community. Most people who go to prison come back to the community. And we become more aware of the fact that it doesn't make sense to isolate them from the community uh, and then expect them to be able to adjust when they do return. So there's an important part of this that correlates with the interest in reentry and returning citizens to the community and enabling them to to pick up a more productive role when they come out. You just mentioned about crime rates have gone down, especially in the last uh, 20 years or so. Uh, you know, no one has really been able to uh, identify why that has happened. Mm -hmm. But there are some who suggest one of the reasons that it has gone down is because we have put so many people in prison. Well. I, I don't think we want to have a talk about statistics in here, but... Um, no, I mean, that's not the issue of the show, right, but still, but, I'm just... But, but yeah, but I think there are as many people who've looked at the, the rates of incarceration and found that they don't explain the decrease in crime and the initiation of new crimes. So do they play some role? Perhaps, but um, there are other things that have happened in terms of far better policing techniques and also the use of good interventions with younger people. We've done... Pennsylvania's a leader... In the, in the treatment of juveniles. And we have far fewer referrals to juvenile court than we used to. And I think it has to do with using good, uh, sound uh, intervention and prevention programs. Um, and I think uh, Dave Bender knows something about well, that. We'll bring as well. Dave into the conversation <laughs> just a moment here. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about uh, the children of. Uh, People in prison, children who have a parent in in prison, and uh, a program in Lancaster County, Ambassadors for Hope. Uh, maybe this is something that can go statewide or maybe even nationwide. Joining us, Robert Cooper, founder and coordinator of Ambassadors for Hope, serving children with a parent in prison. Jennifer Strassenberg, she's a family advocate. Dr. Mary Glazier, chair, professor, director of the Center for Public Scholarship and Social Change at Millersville University. And David Bender, chief strategic officer at Compass Mark. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. That is, if you have a question or a comment about the program, maybe you want to talk about uh, uh, children who have a parent in prison, maybe you have a story to tell. That's 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. David Bender, I'm not ignoring you. Uh, you are the uh, Chief Strategic 
Strategic Officer at Compass Mark. First of all, what is Compass Mark? Well, Compass Mark uh, has been around since 1966 as a leading prevention uh, provider for substance abuse um, in uh, Lancaster and Lebanon counties. So we do an awful lot of early intervention with kids. From what I understand, uh, you and uh, Bob Cooper, that the two of you talking had a lot to do with how this began. Yeah, and we actually we had looked at this whole idea uh, some 12, 15 years ago. Um, and I think with, with any movement, um, with any change, uh, you, you, you plant some seeds uh, and then you wait for the time to be right for some things. Uh, we tried to get something like this happening in the Lancaster County Prison, as I said, 12, 15 years ago. Uh, and there were a lot of barriers. There was a lot of resistance to it back then. We just wanted to be able to simply identify uh, who the kids were and be able to try to get them into some of our support groups. Um, but as I said, there were, there were, there were difficulties with, uh, with, with uh, uh, prison procedures and things like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that resistance. What kind of resistance? Well, it was, it, it, uh, back then, there was even resistance in terms of being able to bring uh, people who had um, a history of substance abuse. In other words, someone, who, someone could have been in recovery uh, clean and sober for, for 20, 30 years, uh, and they still were not allowed to be able to come back into the prison to be able to talk to prison inmates about uh, their substance abuse. Um, that has all changed. Um, uh, just the idea of being able to bother with this issue. It was something that no one wanted to bother with. Um, the focus was entirely on uh, arresting people, getting them into prison, making them pay their for their crime, uh, and a total failure to recognize that these kids were paying the price for that crime as well. And that's a perfect uh, follow-up to what the, Dr. Glacier was talking about earlier, that there has been a change in attitude. And just what you described, even in the last 15 years, there's been a change in attitude that, you know, just punishing people, sending them to prison, now, granted, there are some people who have broken the law and have committed crimes that are so serious. I mean, they, they deserve to be there. But in your mind, what has changed? Well, I think uh, a number of things. One is, one is certainly the cost. Um, but I think people also are looking at the, uh, you know, what people are stopping, uh, some people are stopping to take a look at what are we really trying to achieve? Um, why is it that we are locking this particular person up? What do we expect uh, during the time that that person will be in prison? What do we expect when that person comes back out? So if we look at all the different things in terms of uh, punishment as deterrent, if we look at um, uh, accountability, uh, and if we look at uh, reparations, you know, there's people repairing the harm that, that, that they've done, and if you look at restoration, what Mary was talking about in terms of bringing someone back into the community, welcoming them back in, if the ultimate goal is to, uh, for those people who are capable of working their way back into the community, we have to look at each one of those steps. We have to look at what we're doing to provide safety for a community uh, and deterrence for, for other crimes, uh, being able to do the accountability and the reparations and be able to do the restoration. So I think people are beginning to look at that right now. And the pocketbook has had a lot to do with that. Um, you know, we've gone from... Um, you know, I point out often uh, the issue of, of mandatory sentencing. Um, back in 1982, there were two mandatories, one for uh, murder one, one for murder two. Uh, by 1988, there were 23 mandatories, and I don't even know how many there are right now. So the prison population ended up going from 7,000 inmates uh, here in, in Pennsylvania to 52,000 inmates. Uh, and the cost went from $140 million per year to over $2 billion per year. 
not even counting the capital costs of building the prisons. So I think the taxpayer finally is is pushing back a bit, saying, listen, I don't know if this is really working. Um, let's start taking a look at what we're trying to achieve and, and the way we should pay for it and, and the, uh, the way we can identify alternatives that may be able to uh, help things with the children, be able to help things uh, in terms of restoring uh, an inmate to to our communities. I, I, I wanted to just add to this, too, that is, this has not been a liberal or conservative-driven right. change or Republican or Democrat-driven di- change. And one of the most amazing things about the change that's occurred in Lancaster County has been the role that our political leaders have played in making this happen. Absolutely. So that when um, Jen's position, which is funded by the County of Lancaster, um, was uh, established a year, a little over a year ago, all three county commissioners supported it, voted for it. And, two um, Republicans, one Democrat. Two Republicans, one Democrat. And um, they've, been, they've been real leaders. All three of them had been real leaders in terms of taking this issue forward and responding to um, our concerns. I mean, we started, Bob and I started just, you know, meeting up with people one-on-one, commissioners one-on-one. We invited them to breakfast, brought some outside experts in and sort of fired people up that way. Um, but they've they have really made significant changes. Uh, county leadership has been has been tremendous, and I think Lancaster County really stands out as a leader in Pennsylvania in terms of addressing this. The only other county that has anything really intentional that I know of for children with parent in prison is Allegheny County. And um, they have quite an extensive set of services, um, but it's a much larger county. You're not as surprised to see it there. But I think Lancaster County really should take take pride in what they what they've been willing to do. And of course, we're going to ask them to do more. Yeah, and you see that same thing at the state level um, with uh, like uh, conservative Republican senator um, Senator Greenleaf, uh, who who's put in place time chair of the Judiciary Committee. Yes. Right, yeah, and 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 he's 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 a wonderful person. He he he's so open and honest with saying, look, I was, I'm the guy that put in place most of these mandatory sentences and really was pushing the tough on crime issue, and now that's not working. Let's take a look at what does work. Um, and Secretary Welch. Wetzel, he's one of the best things that's ever happened to Pennsylvania. You know, but there are several different aspects to this. I mean, uh, the program deals with the children who have a parent in prison. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about uh, the impact it has on uh, the parent itself. You know, as you said, most of uh, these people are going to come out of prison. And, uh, David, I have to kind of disagree with the term you used to say we welcome back them back into the community. That's not really the case in, 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 in very often, put it that way, and that's a whole separate issue. But that's another aspect to this. I want to find out, uh, you know, what the, the inmate, the person who is in prison, the parent, gets out of this. Does it keep them from, uh, you know, breaking the law again and going back to, to, to prison? The other aspect of this is, uh, you know, Jim, when you're talking about uh, visitation and little kids, it's not like visiting a parent in the hospital. No, it is not. No. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about people who have broken the law, and there are uh, there have been other people impacted by that, uh, victims of crime that has to be considered. I just bring this up because it's a complicated issue. It is not just that we do this out of compassion for the kids, even though that's a big part of it. But at the same time, there are a lot of other aspects that go into it, correct? 
There, there are, and and people just don't realize how much and in how many different ways this has affected the lives of uh, the children and their caregivers on the outside. Um, you, you had mentioned, David mentioned um, that there are um, some barriers to get over, and one of them is that the people think that um, a child visiting with their um, parent who's incarcerated is a bad influence or um, a, it's a negative thing, and that's one of the barriers that we have to get past. Um, and the way that I do that and the way that I explain that is that you look at it from the child's perspective and they have such a wonderful way of seeing um, their parent and seeing the world. They're able to separate so easily um, the difference between who their parent is and the bad thing that they've done. Um, and uh, they they look at their parent and they say, what I remember and what I think of when I see my parent and talk to my parent is that they were there for um, my soccer games and they read me a story at night and they we ate dinner together and they made my favorite cookies on Saturdays and now I don't get any of that. That's the first thing that a child thinks of. And if you look at it from that perspective, you see why that separation is, is so um, greatly affecting them. What are the kind of conversations... Go ahead, Bob. You can pull that over. But what are the kind of conversations you have with uh, the children and their parents? Um, when, when I walk a child into the visitation, um, I talk to them about just sort of how to how to break the ice because maybe it's been a week or two since they or sometimes um, a month or two since they've seen their parent and um, I can tell that they're a little shy uh, so um, I, you know one of the things that we always talk about is is um, you know ask ask your mom or dad what what they um, what the most uh, disgusting food is that they've eaten and then they get a big smile and they start laughing and they ask that question and those are the funniest stories um, the, the my favorite one is is that the parent told them well that she, after she, she laughed for like five minutes um, she said that um, that she had had bologna soup <laughs> and, and, and so another that, that thing about prison food is true yeah, yeah. and another and a father a father said that he would have to make um, ramen cake when he came home. It was ramen noodles and a honey bun cake and various other ingredients all, all mushed into a cake. And if you let it sit long enough, it tastes just like cake. Uh, so. <laughs> I always like to say that uh, a child who has a parent in prison goes through a traumatic experience that lasts a lifetime. And just yesterday, I was talking to somebody who said, you know, you don't, you don't realize this, but my dad was in jail. And, and it's something that follows them for a long time. And it's uh, one of the kinds of things that we have to be very sensitive to. Well, when you say that, that stigma is something that, and I, I don't know how the program deals with that, because the reality is that they do have a... And, a parent in prison, and society tends to look at that and say, "Oh, must be a bad guy, must right. be a bad uh, mom if uh, if they're in jail." Right. We try to uh, compensate for that in a way. It's difficult. We've only been doing this for a year, so to look long term to see how that impacts these children uh, is not possible at this point. But our goal would be to help them in every way we possibly can 
to accept this and to work it through. And Jen, I think, does a good job with that. We're, we're hoping in the near future to have um, like peer support groups so that they're, they're, they get to be around other children and, and feel a little bit nor, more um, normalized about, about the issue um, and, and feel like they have peers that are going through the same thing that they are. Um, so that's, that's hopefully in the near future. Let's take some phone calls. Uh, Warren is in Higgins. Warren, you're on the air. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I uh, want to say that uh, children of incarcerated parents can certainly become successful uh, uh, citizens. I formerly lived in Wisconsin and knew of a woman from uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, in southern Wisconsin. She was a vocal performance major at uh, Carthage College in Kenosha. And in uh, February of 2011, she became Miss Kenosha. And then in uh, June of uh, 2011, uh, she became Miss Wisconsin. And uh, local and state uh, Miss America um, uh, pageant winners have a platform. And so she used her own personal story of her father was in prison for white-collar crime in the area of Kenosha in southern Wisconsin. And then in September of uh, 2011, she ended up becoming Miss America. Uh, Her name was Laura Kepler. And she went all across the nation in 2011 and 2012, speaking about that issue of being a uh, a daughter of a, an incarcerated uh, uh, parent. So you, your point is is that uh, we can, you know, the, those children can become successes with uh, uh, the right amount of support and uh, being driven themselves. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Yes, she turned something that was uh, a stigma into something that she wanted to help others, and she spoke to. Um, really thousands of children and uh, young adults and adults uh, during her year as Miss America about the the personal issue in your own life. Thank you very much for pointing that Thank out. You. And uh, I, I think a lot of us do remember that because uh, when in 2011, when she did go across the country talking about the issue, it, it did uh, make more people think about it and take a, a second look at it. But let me look at the other side. Are there... Probably many people, and there are a lot of amateur psychologists in this country. I have to say I'm one of them. Uh, But I think that there are a lot of people who assume that if a parent is in prison, that the child is more likely to break the law and go to prison, too. Is that the case? Obviously, you're shaking your head, but go ahead. Yeah, it's it's clearly it's a risk factor, sure, and it does enhance the likelihood. Now, it may not be just because the parent was in prison. It may be that the child is suffering from some of the same criminogenic factors that the parent were, but it is definitely a risk factor, and it is a reason why special attention should be given to children who have a parent in prison, because if you understand that there's a risk factor, you can help to address it, which is, again, going back to Compass Mark, has a long tradition of addressing the issues of substance abuse, which are correlated highly with imprisonment, by providing excellent programming for kids, many of whom are, quote, at risk, um, and, and helping to give them direction to move in a better path and take what could be a negative experience and turn it into um, a basis for resilience and strength. But yeah, it is a risk factor for subsequent imprisonment. When a child's parent goes to prison, there's a number of risk factors that that they're experiencing. Like like Mary said, it's not just the child's um, parent being incarcerated that puts them at risk for for future incarceration themselves. It's the it's everything that was going on in that child's life up to that point. They may have witnessed um, a lot of drug use. There may have been um, you know a, a 
a fair amount of criminal activity going on around them, so some learned behavior. There, there may have been some other um, situations that that put them at at risk. And then you add on top of that that their life is turned upside down and they're separated from their their primary caregiver. And the, all of those things add up together to put them at at risk for a number of things, future incarceration, they're, they they have a higher risk for um, potential drug and alcohol abuse. There's just there's a lot of risk factors and that's just that's just one of them. Well, and mental illness is another thing we, we talked about today. So mm-hmm. The percentages are very high for or men especially, or excuse me, women especially, who have uh, gone to prison, I think it's like 75% have had some mental issues. I saw it identified that way. And like 54% of men who have gone to prison, those statistics are fairly consistent. They're not exact all the time. Mm -hmm. But that is something that can run in families. So that that could be an issue too. But, you know, something you brought up, Jen, um, even if one parent does go to jail. There's no guarantee that the child is going to be in a a good situation. Maybe, as you said, the drug use continues. Maybe there is other criminal activity going on. If there's a grandparent involved, I understand that uh, many grandparents are afraid to go to the child welfare system because they're afraid of the child being taken away and put into foster care. So, it sounds like a bigger job than just dealing with the child and the parent. Would you agree, David? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think, well, first of all, just getting back to the earlier issue, I think it's really important for people to understand that there's a difference between uh, a kid having uh, an increased risk factor and a kid being preordained to end up in prison. Right. Um, we don't want to start labeling kids um, you know, people pointing a finger or just looking askew at a kid saying, hey, your, your, your dad's in prison, you're going to end up there too, so you're already trash. Um, the, uh, yeah, what we need to look at is the entire system. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that, that really, really, really needs to happen at sentencing um, is a family impact statement. That, that goes along with that sentencing. The judge has to, to look at what the impact is going to be of that sentence, whatever sentence he or she's about to hand down. And if we take a look at that, that family impact statement, then we'll be able to, to look at the bigger system. We'll be able to look at all the things that that child needs and recognize that sentencing should not just be about um, the parent. Sentencing should be about what we are about to sentence that child to as well. So when that hammer drops uh, by the judge, um, a lot of sentencing is going on. And we need to have a family impact statement before that judge, before that decision is made. I think it should also be mandated that there would be a financial impact with that statement. Um, if the uh, you know judge had to take a look at saying, all right, I, I want to sentence this woman to 20 years in prison, and that's going to cost 38000 per year for that prison. Um, and uh, she's got three children. And each of those three children are going to need to go into foster care at $10,000 each. So there's another 30. So we're looking at $68,000 per year for that person going into prison. If that judge had to pass the hat among the taxpayers at that point and say, um, I'm asking for $1.4 million right now to, to, to enact this, I think a lot of taxpayers would push back a little bit. And they would say, well, wait a minute. Do, do we really need to go with 20? Can we go with 10? And if we go with 10, maybe maybe she needs 20. But 
Maybe not. And maybe that other 10 years' worth can be put toward the kids in terms of a, a system that's going to take care of them. So I think if we just start to take a look at that whole picture, the financial picture, the, the family impact picture, and the, the requirements to uh, you know, deter um, the person from f- uh, future crime uh, and, and restore them to the community, um, look at all those pieces, then we'll be able to look at the whole system. And victims, too. Exactly. The victim, right now, people don't seem to understand that the victim is left out uh, of the, the whole criminal justice system right now. The victim really doesn't have much say in terms of being able to express the harm that has been brought to that particular victim. They don't have the opportunity to be able to tell an offender, um, this is what you did to me when you, uh, you know, when you did whatever it is that you did. And here, was, here are the ramifications of all of that. And here's what I think uh, you need to do in, in, in order to to start to repair that harm. Uh, we need to engage the victims. We need to um, have the offender begin to hear more of this. And that's an important part with children being uh, being able to meet with their parents too, because sometimes the kids have to say to their parents, this is what you did to me. And when you committed that crime, you thought it was all about yourself, but it wasn't just about you. This is what you did to me. This is how it's affecting me today. And it gives that parent a reason to be able to, to look at themselves and say, geez, I didn't know I created that much harm. Mm. I need to fix this. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Uh, Today we're talking about uh, a program in Lancaster County that uh, possibly could go uh, beyond Lancaster County borders, Ambassadors for Hope, working with uh, uh, the children of uh, children who have a parent in prison. Our guest today, Robert Cooper, founder and coordinator of Ambassadors for Hope, family advocate Jennifer Strassenberg, Dr. Mary Glazier, chair, professor, director of the Center for Public Scholarship and Social Change at Millersville University, and David Bender, chief strategic officer at Compass Mark. We welcome your questions and comments. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. I want to go to the phone now. Larry is in Lancaster. Larry, thanks for being patient. Sure. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, I have a couple comments and then a question. I was a uh, supervisor at Children and Youth for Lancaster County Children and Youth for about 40 years. And I would say throughout that time, visitation at the county prison was pretty much of a nightmare for kids who were in foster care. Caseworkers pretty much dreaded taking kids in. So I want to applaud the commissioners for advocating for this program and implementing it at at the county prison. And my question is, um, Does this organization interface with children and youth? Do they assist? uh, Most kids now go to relatives rather than into foster care. So do they interface with children and youth um, to help with these kids visiting their parents in prison? Hey, John. Thank you. Excuse me. Thanks, Larry. Thank you very much. Bob, why don't you uh, take that one as far as... Okay, what are we going to say? Who do you want to? I, I can answer okay, that question. Yeah. Um, yes, we absolutely do. I absolutely do um, talk with children and youth, and and when they're involved, I'm making sure that um, you know that the parent and um, the the caseworker at children and youth are connected. Um, they it's actually pretty exciting. I'm, I, you might be happy to hear that um, that has improved drastically. Um, right around the same time that that I started my visitation and um, family. 
family support. Um, children and youth also changed some of their policy, and we we share a bin, a couple bins of toys and and carpet, and uh, we we do visitations in the same room. Um, so they they um, have made a, been able to make a lot of um, headway in improving their visitation with parents as well. Was Larry correct that uh, most children stay with relatives now rather than uh, going into foster care? Um, whenever possible, that that's um, that seems to be the case that they're able to stay with with relatives. But it, you know, it, it is um, a safety thing. If children and youth is involved, they they have to do that um, risk assessment. And let me just bring it up before we take another phone call. Uh, are there are there cases where maybe kids should not see their parents? That the not that there's a danger imminent because obviously there's supervision in the in the in the prison and all that, but maybe that their crimes have been such that uh, they shouldn't uh, have a relationship with their parents. Well, I don't know about um, not have a relationship with their parents, but there there are some um, restrictions, at least for my program anyway, on on um, which kinds of visitations I'm able to set up. If they if they have any crimes against children, um, that that those restrictions are usually sense. already in place through um, like the district attorney's office. Um, sometimes I've seen some restrictions in place um, due to um, probation restrictions. But um, when I set up a visitation, all of all of those. Things Things are checked out pretty thoroughly. I do my own checks. The prison does their checks. So it, it's been uh, vetted in a couple different um, uh, arenas before uh, I, I facilitate a visit. Have there been cases where maybe uh, the parent has expressed a willingness to see their child where you, you said no? You said no, that uh, you're not going to do it. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, one of the things that I check is for a PFA. That's that's one of the, the uh, things that they're not always readily um, telling me. Protection from abuse, yeah. Um, is telling me that a, a protection order is in place. So when I find that out, I, I have to uh, go back. Other other times the parent will tell me, you know, my... my um, Children's mother has a protection order uh, against me, um, and I'll and I'll say, well, you know what? I can still go out and and offer assistance to your children and family. I just won't come back to you with any information. And I'll and ninety nine percent of the time that they're very happy with that to know that that at least um, their children are going to get some um, some help. Hey, let's take another phone call from John and Lidditz. John, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Scott. Good morning. And, uh, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're I welcome. I really enjoy listening to your radio show. Thank you. The topics that you talk about are, are very important. One thing, um, I, I have a comment. Uh, when I was younger, I was actually in prison twice. My oldest son, who is now a teenager, uh, remembers that, that time very vividly. And um, one thing I would like to stress is accountability. You know, Parents have to be accountable for their actions uh, because your children look up to you, and and they look up to you in more ways than just you know like I want to be like my dad or I want to be like my mom. You know, it, it's important to say, listen, I made a serious mistake. It was very heartbreaking, but you don't want to go down that path. And I I think I can honestly say that because I've done that since then, and and I've led by example. My son has, has actually done very, very well in school. He has uh, goals that I never had when I was, when his, uh, when I was his age. And um, now, you know, I'm actually quite successful. And, and uh, 
you know, he takes that in, in stride, and, and he's very proud. And, and that, in turn, makes me very proud, you know. And I, I just think that, you know, any parent who's been incarcerated uh, should really point that out to their kids, and that's all I have to say. Well, hold on, I, I, would, I would love to ask you a question. I, I, from what you're saying, um, th- this is Jennifer, <laughs> um, from what you're saying, isn't honesty one of the keys there? I talk to a lot of parents who who um, end up telling their children some other version or some other story about where they are, and it sounds like you were you were honest with your son and and um, explained that you had made a mistake and and that you had had to um, pay for that mistake. Is that is that accurate? And was that helpful for you and and your son to be able to have that kind of honest conversation? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know when I talk my wife uh you know she she said it was something that you know you really shouldn't bring up you should just kind of put it on the back burner and and make an indirect point in regards to that however i saw it differently because you know kids uh you can watch them 24 7 you can talk to them till they're blue in the face um but at some point they're going to make their own decision and they're going to stray away from home you know we all do it and so I think it's important to be very honest with your children and, and you know, show them or tell them, listen, if, if this is the choice that you make, um, you're going to be the one to deal with the repercussions. And if, if you have children of your own one day, it's going to be important that you explain this to your kids and tell them exactly why, you know, you made that decision and what the consequences were and now what you intend to do to, to change it, to make it into a positive thing rather than, you know, this big, dark cloud that's constantly hanging over you. Hey, John, I'm glad you called in, and I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, you turned your life around. Sounds like your son has a bright future. Thank you very much for your call. Thank you. I'm glad John called in because that, uh, you know, hearing from someone who has been there and experienced it, uh, I mean, that's we could talk all we want here today. That's uh, the, that's the perfect example. Powerful, yeah. powerful yeah, comment the, that he uh, made. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a great example that, uh, you know, people who are in prison are not throwaway people, that they still have something to contribute even uh, from inside the prison walls or after they get out of the prison walls. They have something very important to contribute. I'd worked uh, some years ago with a uh, a kid, well, just barely out of being a kid, who's uh, he's in prison now for murder and will be for the rest of his life. Uh, but I talked to him about how he could help his younger brother. Uh, so it's not a parenting role, but it's the same kind of thing. And he really was able to help his younger brother stay out of trouble by, by being able to tell him that um, – what he said to his brother was, you know, all of my crew said they were, were always going to have my back. And he said, as soon as I was arrested, they all turned against me. Um, and he said, not one of them ever reached out to my girlfriend and my baby daughter to be able to see if they were all right and to see if they were able to help them. So all that talk about, you know, I got your back uh, and I'm there for you, all of it disappeared. And when he was able to convey that to his younger brother, his his younger brother really took it to heart and changed his life. So people can do a lot from inside the prison walls, and they can do a lot when they come out uh, from those walls if they if they do that same honesty that, that John just, just uh, displayed. We have an email here. It says, do your guests have any advice about what to tell kids who have parents that were in prison before they were born? 
it's entirely possible that other kids will find out that my children's father was in prison, and I want them to be prepared in case they get teased. Also, I think it's a good cautionary tale for them to know he was in prison and also explains why he was in trouble, uh, had trouble getting a job. Depending on the age, it seems like one of the one of the um, best ways to explain, especially for younger kids, they seem to react very well to um, calling in an adult timeout. They seem to understand that whole concept that um, you know I've had mothers and fathers explain that they have um, you know done something wrong and and now they're having an adult timeout. But there again, going back to that honesty, um, just <laughs> explaining it in your own words and your your um, you know your own circumstances seems to be the the best um, thing for children. And there's actually some some children's literature that addresses the issue of of having a parent in prison. I don't know if any of the books address the issue of your father was in prison before you were born, but. Um, but uh, there, and I think uh, we have some resources through Ambassadors for Hope that people can access um, as far as children's literature and, um, and, and books that we could share with We only have folks. about two minutes left, and there's a lot, still a lot to talk about. But I did want to get, uh, we had an email here from Kay who says, uh, impact on families has not really been discussed. Low-income families in particular may lose a lot of benefits. Um, what does she mean by that? I think Jen addresses that when, you know, when the person goes to prison, if they had been receiving benefits, it may be a disruption in that. So part of the very practical stuff that Jen is doing is helping the new caregiver identify what the child might be eligible for in a different household and making sure that that's transferred, correct? And right. and, and just helping to address these. A lot of the families are having housing issues. A uh, caregiver who's not a biological parent needs special permission to be able to make decisions in school get them connected with therapy, get them connected with the state um, benefits, if that's what in particular this this person is talking about. But there's a number of different things. If it's not the biological parent, which it often isn't, and it's a grandparent taking care of them, they need they need a um, guardianship paper. And that's something that I help them with. But there, there are so many things that, that they need in place to be successful in, the, in that new placement while their parent's incarcerated. We have about 90 seconds left. And Bob, I, I do want to ask you what you want to see come of the program. But one quick question, if you give me a quick answer, is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, most of these people will be coming out of jail. Finding a job, getting their life to get lives together is difficult. Um, and I guess one of the big questions then is that has to be that has to be frustrating. Um, how can this help that them to get reintegrated back into life? If they're able to maintain a connection with their parent while they're incarcerated, that transition back into the home and back into the lives of the children is easier because they've maintained contact. They, they've been able to um, talk with their, their parent about some of their feelings and thoughts on, on um, being separated. Um, and, they, and they're able to help make some decisions in the children's lives and be a part of that. Right, Bob, Bob Cooper, we only have about 30 seconds left. What do you want to see for Ambassadors for Hope? Well, we've already had 250 referrals and we're in our first year, so we do need to expand. We have a two-year grant that expires at the end of this year. We need to refund that, and we need to look at funding for additional staff because there are different things we want to do. How about a website if people want to get more information? www.ambassadorsforhope.com. All right. I want to thank all four of you for being with us today. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, listeners who have uh, emailed us and said that uh, they like the sound of the program. Hopefully there's a bright future. Thank you very much. 
Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, Governor Tom Wolf will be our guest in the first part of the program, and then Senate Majority Leader Jake Corman right after that. 